You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Midtown. What does it mean to put our hope in a God we can't see? What does it mean to walk the walk of faith? This is our sermon series, Water and Blood, Finding Rest in Jesus, Our High Priest. Peace be with you. Today's scripture reading is Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 6. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. Let brotherly love continue. Don't neglect to show hospitality. For by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. Remember those in prison as though you were in prison with them, and the mistreated as though you yourselves were suffering bodily. Marriage is to be honored by all and the marriage bed kept undefiled because God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. Therefore, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, peace be with you. All right, what a joy it is to be with you. If you're a first-time guest, my name is Jamal. I'm one of the pastors here. We are thrilled that you will be with us today. We pray that a word would be spoken or a song song that will enrich your life in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, you truly are faithful. You are beautiful. We worship you. We desperately need you. I need you. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you. O Lord, our God, my rock and redeemer. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, in 2008, there was a publication written about Sojourn Midtown, and it was written from more of a leftist ideology. And the title of the publication uh, was, It Smells Like the Holy Spirit. Essentially, a journalist came in, they interviewed Sojourn, said they wanted to do a story on the church because it had grown in eight years from a small group to about 1,200. But the publication essentially summarized Sojourn Midtown as a church that appears progressive, but, that it, but who has ideas that are regressive. It was not a, a kind or, or generous way maybe to interpret uh, what was, was happening here. Fast forward to 2017, a right leaning or I would say extreme right uh, perspective was given by another publication. And this publication was a, a national publication. How we got on their radar, I have no idea. But they essentially critiqued Sojourn for being uh, socially active in a way that was unfaithful to Christian principles. Sojourn spoke up about some neighborhood violence with guns and held a a gathering to really lament that and to talk about gun violence. And they unfairly connected us to organizations that I had never heard of 
um, <laughs> and basically said that we share their thoughts. And so oftentimes I'm asked, well, Pastor Jamal, uh, which way do you lean? Do you lean to the left or do you lean to the right? And I want to say, man, I lean back. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> lean back. <laughs> well, my response is often like, man, by the grace of God, I'm doing my best to lean on Jesus. They say, wait, wait, so you're a centrist. And I say, by the grace of God, I'm gospel-centered. And by the grace of God here at Sojourn, as pastors in his church, we are gospel-centered and we are biblically faithful. And we're not a church that's going to neatly fit into ideological boxes because we believe that Jesus does not neatly fit into ideological boxes. And we believe that people, and part of our job is to train people to think biblically and clearly so that they can engage the world in a way that Jesus would engage the world and so that they can vote according to their conscience. But here as pastors, we're trying our best to pastor and point people to the way of Jesus, to the way of Jesus. And sometimes that means that we're going to be unpopular. We're going to get hit from every side. We're going to be misunderstood. But I think that that's worth it. And I think that's what the Bible calls us to do. And so even as we go through Hebrews and continue to, to work our way through Hebrews and we land on Hebrews chapter 13, we want to understand that the, that the church that the preacher was pastoring was a church that that felt unwelcome, that felt mistreated, that felt persecuted, and they were tired and they were weary because they were not fitting in. And now that we get to chapter 13, we see that the author is going to move from orthodoxy to orthopraxy. He's going to move to doctrine to how Christians should respond to that doctrine with dutiful delight. And what I'm hoping and what I'm excited about with today's sermon is I think that the author helps us as a church to do the same. Helps us to see that as a faithful witness of Jesus, as people who are abiding in Jesus, leaning on Jesus, seeking to be gospel-centered and biblically faithful, that we can be loving and have convictions. That the two are not separate. In fact, they go together. And the, the way in which they go together is, is by us loving people according to the word of God. Drawing near to people in ways that the scriptures tell us to. And so in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1 through 6, the author gives us the main point of the sermon when he says, let brotherly love continue. The NIV version says, keep loving one another. And that's the main point. If we're going to be a faithful that is a church that is faithful to God and his kingdom, we have to keep loving one another. We have to persist in love and love well and love as Jesus teaches us to love. Now, as we're talking about this, this love, we want to understand that it's not going to fit in boxes that people want us to fit in, but it is faithful to what God has called us to. And so there's two ways in which we keep loving one another, two ways. And the first he's going to say is by practicing hospitality, by practicing hospitality. And the second is by not, I'm sorry, is by caring for the mistreated, by practicing hospitality 
and by caring for the mistreated. But the author is also going to show two ways that we are not to love each other or two ways that is unloving. And that's by committing sexual immorality and by loving money. And so for 12 chapters, we've been just basking in this beautiful uh, orthodoxy, these doctrines that are pointing us to Jesus as our high priest, as Jesus as our satisfaction, that is pointing us to, to, to his beauty and that is reminding and warning us of what will happen if we turn away from him. And now the author is going to uh, move from there to concluding applications. All of chapter 13 are these concluding applications. But as we're reading these applications, if we lose the good news of Jesus, which he's been preaching for 12 chapters, this will feel like duty. This will feel impossible. So even as we're going through this chapter, we want to understand that we've got to connect the two, the gospel to um, how we walk it out and how we live this life. One author says that the, the fire to do in the Christian life comes only from being soaked in the fuel of what has been done. The fire to do the Christian life only comes from the fuel of what has been done. We only find the fuel to do what I'm going to say today by reminding ourselves of what Jesus has done for us. But the essential exhortation, or exhortation here is to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. This virtue of love, brotherly love, is a major virtue through all of the scriptures. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul says, hey, faith, hope, and love remain, but the greatest of these are love, because faith and hope, we know, will come to an end, especially for, for Christians as we uh, go into the eschaton, as we see the face of Jesus. We'll no longer need faith. We'll no longer need, need hope, but love will persist. Love is... And brotherly love is the, the major virtue of Scripture. Jesus says this, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, by the love that you have for one another. Now, when we talk about brotherly love, we're not saying that we should simply ignore um, and not love well people who are not Christians. No, the Bible calls us, to, calls us to love neighbor. And the Bible also calls us to love our enemies. St. Augustine, that great African Theologian says this, love everyone, even your enemies, not because they're your brothers, but so that they may become your brothers. If you do this, you will always be on fire with brotherly love, both toward the one who is your brother and toward your enemies who may become your brothers. All your love will then be brotherly love. So as I narrow in specifically on Christians and our call to love one another, um, we also want to note that in the same way, we need to love those who are not in Christ. And my argument is simple. If Sojourn Midtown is going to be a light in Louisville, we must love one another and we must not compromise on what the Bible says is love. And so first, let's look at the first way in which we are to love one another. He says it is by practicing hospitality. It is by practicing hospitality. He says, listen, keep loving one another. Let brotherly love continue. This word, brotherly love, is a word that we get for Philadelphia, right? It's this, this, this love that we have for 
one another. And the way in which we do that is by being hospitable. The word hospitality literally means to love the stranger. To love a stranger. To be hospitable is to show a radical welcome of the other. Now, this is not a new concept. This is a concept that is not even strictly Christian. The Greeks were extremely hospitable. It was a huge virtue for them. Zeus, after all, was the the god of hospitality, right? You have the same with the Romans, the Egyptians. But what separates Christian hospitality from secular or non-Christian hospitality is that we don't simply radically welcome the other or the stranger. We radically welcome them with the generosity of Jesus. And for many of us, when we think about hospitality, what we think about is we think about simply having people in our homes. But hospitality is not limited to the home. Hospitality is a presence, it's a culture that extends wherever we go. And it, as for a Christian, is rooted in the fact that God is, has been, and will always be hospitable to us. He always, in Christ, will practice radical generosity towards us. He always, in Christ, will practice radical welcome. This is what the book of Hebrews has been teaching, that Jesus is our great high priest. And because he's our great high priest, because we're rooted in him, we can come before his throne of grace boldly and find mercy in our time of need. That's hospitality. That's hospitality. Now, when I think about hospitality, honestly, at this stage of life, I get pretty overwhelmed. And the reason why is I've got got five kids. Hey, (laughs) y'all. Man, that preteen age. And so everything I thought I knew about parenting, I'm learning that I got to go back to the drawing board, all right? And so the idea of maybe being traditionally hospitable, open my home and, 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 and doing some of the things that I would naturally love to do seems sometimes like a, a burden. But the thing that struck me this week as I was studying the scriptures is that the Jewish hospitality and Jewish culture was not very individualistic. It was communal. There was a Jewish hospitality code that we see evident all throughout the Old Testament that basically taught that if a person was coming into a community that there was a code in which they would follow. They would go and stop at the the key entrance into the community, or they would go by a well. And as they went by the well, the first step of hospitality is that an elder or someone in the community will greet them. They will initiate and greet them. The second part of that process, as they are greeting them, they are essentially uh, vetting them. They're making sure that they are, are safe. They're making sure that they are healthy. And as they're vetting them, they are thinking through who can they connect them to in the community to help solve a problem. And then that next movement of solving that problem was, was really guided towards protecting that person and lavishly providing for them. And then there was a stated time of departure. But my point is, is that hospitality wasn't in Jewish culture something that was just individualized as much as it was the whole community was involved. And that took a weight off of me as it just reminded me that as the church, that's what we are to be. We are to be hospitable towards one another and we are to be hospitable towards strangers. And the way in which we are to do that is by working together to meet the needs of people who come into Our church, who come into our community, doesn't all rest on one person. So when you give to this church, 
You are being hospitable because you are helping us to create spaces where strangers can come in, like the medical clinic last week, and be served and have needs met. When we pass the peace and we say hello, which is a very important part of our service, we are all practicing hospitality. We are saying you are radically welcomed into this place. And we are a church that sees you no matter where you're from, no matter how you're dressed, you have inherent dignity. And we believe that you should be loved. But specifically in this text, when the writer of Hebrews is talking about hospitality, he's most likely talking about loving one another, brothers and sisters in Christ, and loving those who are missionaries, loving those who were coming into the community, doing the work of the Lord, and who needed a place to stay. And he was essentially reminding them that there are brothers and sisters who are suffering for Jesus, and they need to be welcomed. They need to be loved. And you have to continue to love them in that way. Now, as a church, part of our vision is to be a multi-ethnic church. And hospitality looks differently in different cultures. Some cultures are warmer. Some cultures are colder. Some cultures are more expressive and others are less expressive. And so as we talk about at Sojourn, loving one another and continuing to love one another, hoping to be a light to the city of Louisville, I think part of what we need to talk about with hospitality is us making room for the stranger. We're a majority white church that is multi-ethnic, and we want to make sure that we are considering all cultures. And part of that is getting to know people who are not of the same culture, but part of that is also expanding our mind even in how we worship. The culture that I'm from, the black church tradition, And it's black cultures. Not every black church is this way, right? Not every white church is a certain way, but the church culture that I was from was very expressive in worship. And even preaching was very dialogical. It was a dance, right? Preaching in some white spaces or preaching in other white, it's not a dance. It's not an amen. It's not, it's like you are lecturing, we are listening. We might not, we might say something if we sneeze, excuse me. But you up there, you by yourself, not in the black church. The black church, they're talking to you the whole time. Man, my mother's those deacons when I was preaching, they was letting me know either I was hot or cold. Come on now, Reverend. Let me speed up. Make your point. Make it plain, Reverend. You just used a word that was too big. <laughs> Take your time, Reverend. <laughs> that means you're rushing. <laughs> Slow down, <laughs> which I heard once every five years. <laughs> but it was a dialogue. And if we're going to be a multi-ethnic church, we need to make space for people who talk back during service. In fact, I want to pastor a church where people are welcome to express that the word of God is ministering to them and they can say amen, they can shout, they can stand up and they can do that. And I also want to be a part of a church with people, if that's not your personality, you don't feel pressure to do that, but you welcome others by giving them the space to do that. Now, some of us argue and say, well, Paul said all things must be done in decent and order. And I would say, amen. And there is a point where that line is crossed. And if that point happens in a sojourn, in, in, here at Sojourn, we'll get there and we'll talk to that person. Those mothers used to come sit next to you and start waving a fan. <laughs> or they'll bring you out. They'll take you out. The, usher you out. Right? 
You're doing, doing too much. You're doing the most right now. And we'll get there. But part of us, some people, we're annoyed in ways in the church, as people are worshiping Jesus, that we're not annoyed outside of the church. And we will go to a L game and be the loudest person and the most expressive person. And then cheer on the person who is the loudest person. But then when we come to church, it's inappropriate. And then we baptize it in our beliefs and say, this is the way it's supposed to be done. I took way too long on that. So y'all be hospitable with me. But, but part of loving each other as a multi-ethnic church is, is embracing the other, showing radical love to them and treating them how Christ treats you. Second, the author says, not only must we continue loving each other by practicing hospitality. Second, we must continue to love each other by caring for the mistreated. Look at the text. Remember those in prison as though you were in prison with them and the mistreated as though you yourselves were suffering bodily. And remember, he's writing to a church that is being persecuted and that is being mistreated. And he's saying, you need to remember those who are in vulnerable situations and who are hurting. And all he is doing is continuing what Jesus taught. In fact, Jesus said, if you are my disciple, you are going to suffer. You are going to be hated by men. He actually says, woe to the person who everyone speaks well of. Why? Because what Jesus was teaching was a countercultural way of living. It was a way that says, in order to follow me, you must deny yourself. Pick up your cross, just like I did. No student is greater than the master. And if you're truly following me, who is the way, the truth, and the life, you are going to make people uncomfortable because you don't fit neatly in their boxes or their, their perspectives. And so what, what is the author of Hebrews doing? He is reminding them to be faithful, to persevere as they did once before Hebrews chapter 9 and loving those who are mistreated, who are vulnerable, providing safety for them. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 25, he says this, for I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't take me in. I was naked and you didn't clothe me sick and in prison and you didn't take care of me. And while I do think that there is a, a general principle here to be open and, and to love our neighbor as we can with our capacity and as the spirit leads, I believe that here in Matthew 25, he's specifically talking about those who are in Christ, who are suffering. He says they are brothers and sisters sisters who are in prison, who are hungry, who are hurting, and you ignore that. It is your responsibility, it's our responsibility as a church to care for them, to care for them. And this doesn't really hit us as Christians in America because um, right now we're not experiencing just blatant ongoing persecution, maybe social diminishment, but not persecution. But we've got to realize that the majority of the world is suffering for their faith. We have sent ones on the mission field right now who is suffering for their faith. To say the name of Jesus is to put their families at risk. To gather like this on a Sunday morning is a radical step of faith. 
Got to go to Turkey a few years ago and, and visit some people over there who were Christians and, and had to sneak into their apartment and whisper to sing songs and read the Bible. Just last week, Boko Haram, a radical Muslim group, re, uh, two weeks ago, took responsibility for taking a, 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 a car that was, had bombs in it and running into a, a church in Nigeria. I believe 38 people were severely injured. Multiple people died. According to Christianity Today, an article that was published in January of 2023, it says 360 million Christians live in nations with high levels of persecution or discrimination. That's one in seven Christians worldwide. One in seven Christians worldwide live in places with high persecution and discrimination. Including one in five believers in Africa, two in five in Asia, one in 15 in Latin America. Violence against Christians in many places are normal. They are being killed, maimed, raped, kidnapped, and ransomed often. Chinese officials closed almost 7,000 churches over the last two years. That's their reality. The preacher here says, hey, I need y'all to do something. I need y'all to remember. And how do we remember? We remember by praying, praying for the persecuted church and not just the persecuted church, praying for your brothers and sisters in Christ in your community group who are suffering and going through various trials, loving them, staying near to them, knowing that they are a part of your family, that if you are in Christ Jesus, your biological family who is not in Christ Jesus has really less in common with you than your spiritual family who is in Christ Jesus. And you press into the relationships of your church and you love people who are vulnerable and mistreated. You pray. And Revelations is this picture of the saint's prayer, of the saint's prayer being in a golden bowl and coming up like incense to the Father's nostril, saying that the, the prayers of the saints are precious to the triune God. When you pray, it matters. And not only does it matter, it shapes you. It reminds you, especially North American Christians, of the global body of Christ. And it shakes us out of this dream and this cultural discipleship that says life is about me and Jesus is an add-on. One theologian, I love what he said. He says, in the heart of every man, there are two items. One is a crown or as a cross. The other is a throne. It says, if Jesus is on the throne, then our flesh, Galatians 2.20, is on the cross. But if we're on the throne, then Jesus remains on the cross. Hebrews 10, because we go on sinning deliberately. <laughs> Avoiding his way of life as if we can re-crucify him all again. To not remember 
is to not love. And this is why I love, I love, I love our sending ministries. I love our children ministry. They are helping us to remember. A few years ago, they put on a, a, a persecuted church night where we took all, all the lights and we created this like tunnel uh, where we got to feel what it was like to sneak into a worship service. And we heard from missionaries who had been persecuted. Even now we have uh, SK Global, Sojourn Kids Global, and they send out these uh, small uh, packets that tell us about a different place globally and what Christians are going through. Last night, my family and I, yesterday in the middle of the day, we got to go through, because my kids will say, they will tell me, that was not last night, it was yesterday in the middle of the day. All right. <laughs> Y'all gonna be fact-checking your boy, right? <laughs> we sat in the living room. And we went through what they had prepared about China and what Christians go through in China. And we got to remember that following Jesus in most places can cost you your life. We got to count the costs and look at our own lives to make sure that Jesus is our greatest treasure. Remember. Remember. We remember by praying. We we remember almost he gives us this existential invitation to sit with it, to think about it, to imagine, to, to mull it over, to see ourselves in someone else and say, how would I want to be welcomed? How would I want to be treated? How would I want to be loved if that was me? And that's what hospitality becomes powerful when we say, how would I want to be welcomed into this space? Third, really quickly, I want to give you two ways of living that is not loving. Okay. Six verses, but it's a lot here. Every single one of these could have been its own sermon. And the, a way that is not loving in a way that hurts brotherly love and actually hurts the body of Christ is if we essentially love sexual immorality. Look at this text. Marriage is to be honored by all and the marriage bed kept undefiled because God will judge the sexual immoral and adulterers. And so here, the writer of Hebrews, he's shepherding his congregation. He's like, yo, let brotherly love continue. This is what I need to do, y'all to do. Fam family. I need you to be hospitable. I need you to care for those who are mistreated. And I need you to avoid sexual sin because you are now a part of a body. Your sin impacts not only you physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. It impacts how other people receive you, how you show up to other people. And he makes this argument by reminding us that marriage is to be honored by all. Somebody say all. 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 Every, everybody in the body of Christ. Those who are married and those who are single. Those who are single, we honor marriage by protecting our bodies. By making sure that you're not cultivating a heart that is, is lustful by avoiding sexual sin by seeing marriage as a good thing. But in seeing marriage as a good thing, we have to understand when he says honor, he doesn't mean honor because it's the ultimate thing. 
In fact, the Apostle Paul would argue that, yes, honor marriage, but understand, he would say singleness is, is even a better calling. Okay? So it's not saying honor marriages and make it the greatest thing ever for the church and everybody. He's saying, no, honor it by making sure that you are pursuing purity if you're not married. Honor marriage, those who are married, by not being sexually immoral and not committing adultery. Why? Because you are in a covenant. And because sexual immorality and adultery is, is harming that covenant and is harming the person that you made vows with to love, is betraying their trust. But it's also corroding a picture of what marriage is, uh, simplif- uh, 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 symbolizes, which is Christ's love for his church. And it's tearing at the reputation of Christ's love for his church and the church's response to his love. The word we have for immorality here is the word that we get for pornography. And so avoiding sexual sin isn't just not physically committing sexual sin. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus teaches us it's actually lusting after someone in our hearts. It's not protecting our, our eyes. It's not saving our affections for Jesus and for one's spouse. And I think about the heart, the more you meditate on something, the more it shapes you and the more likely you are to eventually act upon that which you are looking at. He says that's unloving to your spouse. It's unloving to the body of Christ. It is immoral. And listen to what he says. God will judge it. God will judge it. These two things that he tells us not to love are are two idols. Hebrews chapter 12, he talks about running this race and being aware of the sin that easily, easily can entangle us. Both of these can easily entangle us. We are sexual beings. Sex is good. It is created by God. Sex in the confines of marriage is God's will. And you guys heard it said this way, like it's like fire in a fireplace, right? If it's in a fireplace and it's nurtured and contained appropriately, it's beautiful. It brings warmth. But if it is outside of the fireplace and it's on your sofa, that fire is destructive. Sex is powerful. It's not just a, a thing we do with our bodies because we're, we're human. We're, we're experiencing and giving our, ourselves away and it impacts us holistically. And God's vision for our life is to flourish and to be as healthy as possible in Christ and to experience his joy. And sexual immorality corrupts that and it fills us with shame. And some of us in this room, we run to that as a coping mechanism. And the reason that we run to it is because we're afraid or we have some stuff that we haven't dealt with. And Jesus' invitation is for you to come and to find rest in him and wholeness in him And to understand it's going to be hard work and it's going to be a process, but he's not in front of you condemning you. He is beside of you, walking with you, 
saying, confess your sins to the Lord so that you may be forgiven, but also confess your sins to one another so that you can be healed and find help. And I want you to know that Sojourn is a place where you can find hospitality, where you can find pastors and there are mature members who can shepherd you through this idol so that you can find life. Do not hide. Do not hide. Do not high repent and believe, experience God's joy, experience his freedom, experience a pure heart, a clean mind. And when you fall, you get up, you confess, you don't hide, you keep moving forward. Or if you fall. Mm, so much I want to say there, but we'll say that for another time. Amen. Second thing, second unloving way. Two ways to continue brotherly love, two ways of behaving that undercuts love, okay? Here's the last one, is the love of money. The love of money. Second example he gives of, of not loving well is loving money. And this is hard because money is important, right? It's an important because we need to provide for ourselves, to provide uh, for others, money is not bad. It's good. It's a gift from God being able to provide. But the love of money is bad. And here's the thing. Oftentimes we think of people who love money for some weird, weird reason. We think it's just wealthy people who can love money. I know a lot of godly, wealthy people who do not love. Well, I don't know a lot. <laughs> know a couple, a few. <laughs> Not to be fact-checked again. All right, I know some who genuinely love Jesus. And I know some poor people who love money. Had some, some, some people, friends growing up who love money to the point of selling and being on the block to get more of it and hurting their community, hurting their own family. Also know wealthy people who love money, who are in sin as well. That's why 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9 through 8 says this. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires. Listen to this. That plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Listen to what he says, the desire to be rich. Some of us are like, yeah, get rich or die trying. Some of us, we got more of a reality. You understand, like another public theologian, that more money, more problems. But this desire to be rich, making money your life's pursuit, your career your life's pursuit, he says, it will bring you to ruin and destruction. And it is the root of all kinds of evil. Think about chattel slavery here in America and the evil that persisted where millions of people, millions of people died, thrown into the sea, enchained forced to do labor 
without being given dignity or due as image bearers. So how, how do you know if you love money? Hey, there's a line here. I'm going, I'm going to get right up on it. And I want you to know, whatever I deal, whatever you hear, I had to deal with personally for like weeks. <laughs> and so I'm not here preaching at you. I'm with you. One, if you're dishonest about money. If you cheat on your taxes or cheat to get more money, it's a sign that you love money. Debt could be a sign of you loving money. Now, there may be a season where you have to go through credit cards to get on your feet and to regroup, but a person who is living beyond their means, occurring more debt in order to support a lifestyle that you cannot afford is probably a sign that you love money. And it is tying up your resources to be able to share with other people who are in vulnerable positions or mistreated and to give to God's kingdom, which will last. Disgust may be a sign that you, disgust is a sign that you love money. If you judge people based upon what they wear, what they drive, what side of town they look, and if you find value in people based upon those things and you're disgusted when you're around or you experience someone who doesn't meet your standard, it may be a sign. It is a sign that you love money. This week, the Lord really did heart surgery on me as I was considering this and and just thinking about Jesus. And how he lived the perfect life. And he said, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He looked like a vagabond, and yet he was perfectly living out God's will. He is the definition of success. He found his identity in being loved by the father. He was the most generous person ever. He used every ounce of his being to glorify God and to love his neighbor perfectly. And yet, if the modern version of Jesus walked into the sanctuary or stopped me on the street, how would I respond? (laughs) Text says we need to be hospitable because some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it, pointing us to Abraham and Sarah who had three angels come and Abraham met the angels outside of his, his home. He fell on his feet. He, he, he gave them homage. He invited them in. He, he gave them good food. He didn't know they were angels. He just thought they were regular people. He was radically generous with them and hospitable, not knowing anything about them. And this is what God is, is, is challenging us to cultivate a heart that is radically hospitable. And in order to be radically hospitable and to have Christ-like generosity, God's kingdom must be first, not us creating and curating the most comfortable life possible for, for us. 
where we only spend and save. There is a third option, a third option that actually cultivates us to be beautiful, a third option that actually makes an impact, a third option that that actually allows our righteousness to be stored up in heaven where rust and moth does not destroy, and that is sharing. There's joy in sharing. When you give, it shall be given back to you. Good measure, pressed down, running over shall men give unto your bosoms. And with the measure in which you give, you will receive. That's not Creflo Dollar. That's Luke. Some of us, the reason we're so discontent and so miserable is because we believe that life is about the abundance of possessions and we're afraid underneath the swag, underneath the clothes, underneath the car, underneath the pursuit is a fear of not measuring up, is a fear of not looking right, sounding right. Uh, We all struggle with it. And the message of Hebrews, look at this, keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have for he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. The answer to our idolatry, the answer to a seeking satisfaction through sexual immorality and through money is understanding that we are fully loved by God the Father, and He is with us. He will never abandon us in Christ Jesus. We are perfect. We are loved. We have nothing to fear. And we are free to serve God and to pursue what He has for our lives without the fear of fitting in. You fit in with the person who matters most, like an eye in an eye socket. You are in Christ Jesus. The pressure's off. The pressure's off. You've got an eternal vacation coming. Jesus said, I I have went and I'm preparing a mansion for you. You In my father's house are many rooms. Your room is going to be all the things you love in him. But even more than that, you have, you have Jesus waiting on you. So how do we uproot these idols so that we can let brotherly love continue? One, we recognize God's grace In James chapter 4, James goes on an a incredible exposition of how the people of God are adulterers. And he says the answer to our adultery is not condemnation, it's not shame, it's not white knuckling and saying, I'll do better. He says it's grace, it's receiving grace upon grace. It's coming to your heavenly Father who has his arms open and who is freely welcoming you. And allowing him to hold you and to kiss you and to know that he is singing over you and thrilled that you are his. Two is by repenting. 
It's by recognizing that our idols are weak and poor and they will fail us. They are broken cisterns. They cannot hold water. They will fail us. It's also by recognizing that they are dangerous and they will kill us. And it's by rightly worshiping these disoriented things of sex and, 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 and loving money is, is a worship issue. It's a worship issue. What God wants to do is to reorient our hearts so that we can worship Jesus, so that he is on the throne of our hearts, so that our allegiance is to him, so that we remember that we are a part of a kingdom that shall not be shaken. We belong to a better mountain and we worship Jesus Christ as Lord and King, not only as Lord and Savior, but as our ultimate satisfaction, knowing if we delight ourselves in him, he will give us the desires of our hearts. And by that, what it means is he will give our hearts the desires that we ought to have to live our life faithfully in him. So the only way to uproot that is that by doing that. So how, how do we continue to love one another? It's by being hospitable, cultivating hospitality. It's by caring and loving those who are vulnerable and mistreated. It's by avoiding sexual immorality. It's by not loving money. And hear me when I say we will not love each other in our own strength. It takes supernatural power, but there's good news. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us and we have a God who is patient. Let's pray. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn in Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit Sojourn Church dot com slash midtown.